Uh, On Sundays, we've been reading through the New Testament book of Acts. We've been moving along through that uh, fairly quickly, and this morning I wanted to circle us back around to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, which on Sundays we moved through fairly quickly, but I want to go back to Acts chapter 4 and hone in on just one particular part of it, because it gives us a really intriguing commentary on Jesus' death and resurrection. In the weeks, in the months after Jesus had died, after he'd been raised, after he'd ascended into heaven, Jesus' followers, the disciples, the apostles, are looking back on that event. And in Acts chapter 4, we see an intriguing commentary, not just that makes sense of Jesus' death and resurrection in those weeks and months afterwards, but says some really telling stuff into our lives and into our world today. The Oxford Dictionary selects each year a word of the year. Out of all the words that are going round about in the word world, the English words, although there was a Dutch word that made the top list of English words in the Oxford Dictionary uh, in 2016, try and work that one out, and there's no clear translation into English for that word, they, they, they select a word that captures that year. And for 2016, the Oxford Dictionary word of the year is post-truth. Post-truth. Here's the definition. Circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. That's post-truth. Objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than emotion and personal belief. This is the word that has evolved, that is now used to describe a present worldview, a way of making sense of the world round about us and, and doing life in it. We live in a time when truth is less important in shaping public opinion, even irrelevant. Now in in this word post-truth it doesn't mean that there's a complete rejection of truth, it doesn't mean that we completely throw out objective facts but rather emotion and personal belief pull very strongly on forming our opinions. Let me give you some examples of post-truth movements. Brexit, The UK decision to leave the European Union is a post-truth political movement. A political and social commentator say that the margin of people that swayed the decision were post-truth. Their decision was based on emotion and personal belief. Another example, the election of uh, Donald Trump as US President. His success rested on an impassioned appeal to individuals to make America great. Now, who wouldn't want to vote for that? Making America great, if you're an American. Yet the objective fact of his somewhat shallow policy development, commentators would say, and his personal character were overlooked. Uh, Ralph Keyes has written a book called The Post-Truth Era, 
where he describes this current era as an era of dishonesty and deception. He observes that lots of people can be moved to act passionately against logic and rational evidence. He writes, When our behaviour conflicts with our values, what we're most likely to do is reconsider our values, to come up with alternate approaches to morality. This is post-truth, public opinion shaped by emotion and personal belief, even if objective facts and evidence is sketchy. Can you see how social media ignites that? Facebook, fake news, headlines and clickbait. Now this sounds disturbing to most of us. In Christianity, we're used to hard facts and objective evidence. We have learned that the gospel we preach, the gospel that we believe, that it will erode if it's based on mere passion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Luke says of his gospel account in volume 1 that he has written down what is based on eyewitness testimony. He has carefully investigated it. He's written it down in an orderly way. Many of us are Christians because the hard evidence, the objective facts for Jesus' death and resurrection stack up for us. And so post-truth sounds like nonsense. It sounds dangerous. It sounds like a whole different playing field for the gospel. How do we make sense of it? And how does the gospel about Jesus speak into a post-truth world? Why would we gather here on a public holiday, a day where we're given off work to go down to the coast of the beach, to go fishing, to go for a bushwalk, to go for a bike ride around the lake? Why would we gather to remember and celebrate Jesus? Is there a great conflict between a gospel worldview and a post-truth worldview? This week I sat back and read through the book of Acts again and can see that there are some elements of post-truth in the spread of the gospel. On almost every page of Acts, in almost every event, in almost every circumstance, we're seeing impassioned people acting somewhat against logic. Crowds of people see miraculous signs. Crowds of people hear rousing speeches about a resurrected saviour figure who overturns the undesired overlords, even amidst the threat of persecution. You could sit back and have a look at the book of Acts and see impassioned people making decisions to get caught up in this movement against all kinds of logic. Could it be that a wave of mere emotion and personal belief picks up the crowds and swells into something new called Christianity? Who in the first century is doing the fact-checking and the critical news analysis here? Is, 
is the movement of the gospel a post-truth movement just 2,000 years ahead of its time? Well, while we can see parallel elements here of an impassioned post-truth movement, there is something that is very, very distinctive about the movement of the gospel. And that is that it keeps coming back to one point. It keeps coming back to one person. All the way through the book of Acts and all the way through the history of the church, there is never a diversion from this one point, from this one person, Jesus. Jesus came into the world, one man in one place at one particular time, not to start a wave of a movement, a source of a myth or an inspiration for a shallow ideology. But Jesus came into the world to be the focus, to be at the centre of God's great plans of salvation. The focus of the whole universe and the focus of all eternity would come right into this moment where Jesus stood where Jesus walked, was dragged to the cross, where Jesus was hung, where Jesus was died, where his blood dripped down onto real, actual molecules of dirt, where Jesus' body was taken down and dragged and put into a real cut-open tomb. All of the universe and all of eternity focuses in on this moment and what we see in the book of Acts is that Jesus is at the foundation of this movement. Acts chapter 4 recounts for us a healing of a crippled man at the temple gate. It is an amazing story, an amazing moment of healing. And almost in just the margins, almost just in the postscript, it's mentioned there that 5,000 people become Christian believers. Healing... Peter talks about Jesus, there's some opposition, 5,000 people become Christian believers. In some ways it looks like a post-truth wave. It doesn't really matter if this guy's healed or not. These people, there's something to be excited about, there's something to get on board with, there's a bit of clickbait here. This is exciting stuff. But into the midst of it, Luke is very careful in recording for us what Peter and John very clearly explain of what is going on to the rulers. He points to Jesus. Have a look with me please, Acts chapter 4 verse 9. Acts chapter 4 verse 9. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he says, verse 9, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. God's plan in all of eternity is centred, focused in on Jesus. Well, God has created the vast universe with, with limits that are beyond our imagination and far beyond our calculation. All is focused in on the objective facts of one man in one place and one moment. God's eternal plans and purpose is all centred in on Jesus. There is no plan of salvation in God's world. There is no way of making sense of life in this world. There is no way of making a way through life and out the other side than with Jesus. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter is so captivated by that truth, by that objective fact, by that hard evidence, that verse 20, he says he cannot help but speak about it, even though they're being threatened. Verse 20, he says, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The gospel about Jesus is impassioned. It is personal and it's factual, it's objective truth and evidence. And because it is all of these things, the gospel of Jesus intersects every worldview. It is always going to be all about Jesus. Whether we're living in times that are modern or post-modern or post-post-modern or post-truth. Whatever other eras will come in the future, it will all be about Jesus. The impassioned, personal and factual gospel will intersect through every single one of those worldviews. We can have great trouble trying to make sense of the world that can leave our heads spinning. Well, all of you here have been alive the same kind of times that I have. Those of us who have been around churches for a longer time, we've lived through a modern era of how we make sense of the world and how we make sense of the gospel and what the gospel has to say into the world in presenting factual truth. And if something is factual and true, then I will believe it and seek to orientate my life round about that. We moved into a post-modern world where truth kind of seemed to be a whole bunch of different things. As people are then seeking for truth, we now move into post-truth where an appeal to emotion and personal belief shape things. How does the gospel speak into that? Where does Christianity fit? Where should my moral compass point? Is there even such a thing? 
Well, the gospel intersects it all, and in any and every age, through every worldview, it is always going to be about Jesus. Today might be the first time that you've heard about a post-truth movement. Uh, the movement was only really identified in, lay, and labelled as such in about 1992, uh, though the word only really gained traction in 2016. Though we've felt some of those things going on round about us. What can we learn from a post-truth movement? How do we share Jesus into a post-truth movement? Well, as much as ever, we need to appreciate the power of passionate personal testimony grounded deep in the truths of the gospel. See, the positive opportunity that comes with a post-truth movement is that any and every single one of us have an opportunity to speak passionately about the truths of Jesus. Your friends and family are moving in a direction where more and more they want to listen to you. They want to listen to us. Not an authority, not an expert, but someone who is passionate and warm and loving and persuasive and authentic and honest and who lives a life that matches up to it. There's no great rocket science or, or special training to be a great philosopher or an evangelist to make sense of worldviews and to speak Jesus into it, but Jesus will continue to intersect every one of those worldviews. If only we are ready to reach out, to keep working out how to personally and passionately and warmly and lovingly speak about Jesus from one person to the next. All kinds of movements will come and go, all kinds of world views will seek to explain our world and understand it. But because of that great moment in history when Jesus came and lived and died and was buried and was resurrected and ascended because of that great moment in God's great plans, it is always going to be about Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved.'" 